welcome. We're glad that you're here. And uh, we have been in a series we've just started, just a brief, it's called Lessons from the Desert. Our first one was Tapestry and Sovereignty. And we talked about the incredibly sovereign way that God worked through the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, uh, and we spent some time on that. And by the way, you can download these off our website. And then last week we talked about adjustment. And the difficulty Israel had with adjusting uh, to the Lord and to his timing and to what he was trying to do. And we drew some overlaps of that for us and how hard it is for us to adjust sometimes. This morning, then, what we want to cover is the topic of holiness. <laughs> holiness is not a topic you hear much about anymore. It's kind of gone uh, the way of the dodo bird along with uh, hell and a number of other topics, biblically speaking. But it's an incredibly important topic in the Bible. And we're going to take a look at it this morning. So if you join me in prayer, let's pray and then we'll uh, look at this topic. Father, as I come to this, certainly I'm not somebody who is holier than others and could stand here and say, in my great holiness, I could speak this message. That's absolutely uh, quite a joke and actually quite embarrassing, Lord. And the reality is, is that most of what I've known or most of uh, when people look at my life now and see a really cleaned up Steve Mitchells, it's because of what you've done and what you've created in me. And Lord, uh, it's a process and a path that all of us go down. As we're looking at this topic this morning, I ask that you would use the to- ideas and, and things I put together this week to speak in a living way to your people today in 2017. And we ask for that in your name. Amen. All right. So we'll go back to here. So lessons from the desert. One of the lessons that Israel was to learn in the desert was this whole lesson of holiness and uh, to learn that God himself was holy. And so we're going to be taking a look at a bunch of different stories this morning. But remember last week we left off at Rephidim. And at Rephidim was the second time that they had come to this water issue. We're thirsty, there's no water, wah, right? And they didn't trust God. And Rephidim is particularly a difficult spot because second time around they were supposed to respond better. They didn't. And so all kinds of things went sideways and blew up. But uh, at Rephidim, Moses strikes the rock and water comes gushing out and the people have water to drink. This moment in the story of Exodus helps us to introduce the topic for the morning, which is the topic of holiness. Am I sounding, Dave, I'm sounding echoey. Am I, can you tone me down here? Um, God's specific comments both to Moses and to the people when he was talking to them was that they had failed to treat him as holy in these situations. So his, when he came and said, here's my offense, you have failed to treat me as holy. That was what the actual accusation was. And the fact that they did that was a big deal. It wasn't a little deal. It was a big deal. God had revealed himself as holy in the distinction of Israel and Egypt in the ten plagues. And then he had also uh, revealed himself as holy at the crossing of the Red Sea. And at the end of that, in Exodus 15, Moses sings this. I'm not going to sing it for you, but this is what he's saying. He said, Who is like you, O Lord? among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness. Now that's not probably the word we'd have put there. We'd probably put power or, you know, thunder or awesomeness or, uh, you know, words that we would use. But Moses chose this specific 
theme of holiness. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So a holy God leads his people to a holy place, is what Moses is singing. And he says that's what they experience. So note this emphasis on holiness. We're going to walk through it um, the whole time this morning. One of the things that, I, that God was trying to illustrate, uh, it can be easily lost, but one of the things that God was trying to illustrate is the difference between him and the other gods. So God was trying to illustrate the difference between him and the God of the Egyptians, between him and the gods of the desert and the other tribes, uh, between him and any other God. And the difference was holiness. God's awesome and awe-inspiring holiness. And this theme of holiness is a major theme throughout the Bible. You can't hardly read anywhere without running into it. So Moses says that God is majestic in his holiness. Isaiah 5 says this, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. In other words, God can be a just God, he can execute justice because he's holy. Right? We'll explain holiness in a little bit, but he can be a just God because he's holy. He is able to make absolutely just decisions because he's totally holy in his nature and his person. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah records these thoughts. God speaking, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What Scripture's trying to tell us is that God's mind, the way he thinks, is not like our mind. God's mind is different than our mind. And you say, well, how is it different? It's a good question to ask, and I think it's a fair question to ask. God's mind is not like our mind because he thinks with absolute clarity. God does not have double-mindedness. God does not have dissonance in his thinking. There's no shade or shifting shadow. His thinking is crystal pure because of his holiness. In other words, because God is a holy God, his thinking does not become convoluted. His thinking is crystal clear. It's pure. We are not used to that. We think God must be like us, and God sits up in heaven confused and wringing his hand, going, what am I going to do with the 21st century? I have no idea. It's so beyond me. That is not what Scripture says. He's not thinking that way. His thoughts are way beyond our thoughts. Psalm 29 says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And what's the glory due his name? Worship the Lord in the splendor of his... Holiness. The glory due his name comes from his holiness. So we're talking that scripture is saying God is an all-holy God. Totally clean, totally pure. His thinking isn't messed up or muddled like ours. As we sang this morning, and boy, the worship set this message up really well. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The angels sing this nonstop in heaven, as John said. If you want to explore this topic further, uh, I meant to bring the book with me. 
uh, it's, um, I left it upstairs on my desk, so it's up there. But it's by Jerry Bridges. It's called The Pursuit of Holiness. It's an absolute classic in the Christian faith. If you've never read it, you're missing an absolute gem uh, in authorship and Christianity. Jerry captured something in that book that has moved generations. It's called The Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, And uh, nowhere is this holiness more expressed than in his name. When we come to God's name, we would recognize this uh, here as Yahweh, right? Uh, it's without the vowels, so you have just the consonants. This is the Jewish rendition of the word that we would understand as Yahweh. It was considered the holy name of God. How holy? So holy that it was never to be pronounced by the Jewish people. They wouldn't pronounce that word. And when the scribes were writing down the Torah and the law and they were inscribing, they would come to this name and they would write one letter, break the pen, throw it away, take another pen, write the next letter, break the pen, throw it away, take another pen, write the letter, break it, throw it away, and write another, take another pen, write the letter, and throw it away because God's name was too holy to be taken flippantly and using the same pen for all the letters. It was considered that other, that above of the holiness of God. If you, um, this is known as the Tetragrammaton, and uh, it originally comes from Exodus. So if we look at this, that doesn't make any sense to us. But remember the story of the burning bush when God came to Moses and he said, hey, take off your sandals for the ground you're on is holy ground. Wherever God goes, it becomes a holy place because he's holy. And so Moses had to take off his sandals. And Moses, God says, I'm going to save my people. And Moses says, okay, that's That's great. When I go and talk to them, who should I tell them has sent me? Because you have to understand, from Abraham to Moses is 400 years. That's a long time. What if your great, 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 great grandparent told you to remember the things that he had said back in the day? You'd have a hard time recalling that. And Moses is going, you know, we've heard of you. What should I tell him your name is? We have no name for you. Just the God of Abraham or the fear of Isaac, right? The God of Jacob. That's all we know you by. And what did he say? I am have sent you. I am who I am. I am who I am is this uh, name Yahweh. And again, for the Jews, it was so holy, it was never to be spoken by a human. Uh, If you take Yahweh plus Adonai Adonai, uh, and put the vowels and the consonants together, you get this name that we understand, Jehovah. The Lord God is how we would translate that. Uh, So when you see the Lord God in your Bible and you're reading that, that's, um, that's where that comes from. And then, of course, we have the name of Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, which means God will save his people from their sins. And we're going to see this morning that God is saving people from their pollutedness and he wants to make his people holy. All right? What God wants to do is save them from their filth and make them holy. God saves their people from their sins. So if holiness is such a big deal, then the question logically is this morning, all right, what is holiness? What are we talking about when we're talking about holiness? And, and uh, Jerry Bridges has, I think, an absolute crystal definition. He says this, holiness is nothing less than conformity to God's character. 
Right? If you want to talk about being holy, if you want to talk about being a holy person, holiness is nothing less than being conformed or shaped, molded like God's character. You become like God. Here's what he says. He, he writes this, and I think it's, it's brilliant. He says, as used in Scripture, holiness describes both the majesty of God and the purity and moral perfection of his nature. Holiness is one of his attributes. That is, holiness is an essential part of the nature of God. His holiness is as necessary as his existence or as necessary, for example, as his wisdom or omniscience, or I would say even love, right? Another God's character. Why can God love well? Because he's a holy God. It's part of his attributes. Just as he cannot but know what is right, so he cannot but do what is right. We ourselves do not always know what is right or what is just and fair. At times, we agonize over decisions having moral overtones. What is the right thing to do, we ask? God, of course, never faces this predicament. His perfect knowledge precludes any uncertainty on what is right and wrong. But sometimes, even when we know what is right, there is reluctance on our part to do it. The right action may involve a sacrifice or a blow to our pride, for example, when we know we should confess a sin to someone uh, and then we just can't get it out of our mouth, right? We, right? we try to choke it out. We can't get it out there. I added that for emphasis, right? just so you know. Or some other obstacle. But here again, this is never true with God. God never vacillates. He always does what is just and right without the slightest hesitation. It is impossible in, a, in the very nature of God for him to do otherwise. God's holiness, then, is perfect freedom from all evil. We say a garment is clean when it's free from any spot, or gold is pure when all the dross has been refined from it. In this manner, we can think of the holiness of God as the absolute absence of any evil in him. John said, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Light and dark, when used this way in the scripture, have moral significance. John is telling us that God is absolutely free from any moral evil and that he himself is the essence of moral purity. Why does God want us to be morally pure? Because he's holy. It's, that's his nature. That's what he's like. The holiness of God also includes his perfect conformity to his own divine character. That is, all his thoughts and actions are consistent with his holy character. By contrast, now Bridges writes, consider our own lives. Over time, we mature in the Christian life, hopefully, right? And we develop a certain degree of Christian character. We grow in such areas as truthfulness and purity and humility, but we do not always act consistently with our character. When we tell a lie or allow ourselves to get trapped into a series of impure thoughts, then we are dismayed with ourselves for these actions because they are inconsistent with our character. Bridges makes this point. This never happens to God. He always acts consistently with his holy character. And it is thus this standard of holiness that God has called us to when he says, be holy because I am holy. The absolute holiness of God should be of great comfort and assurance to us. If God is perfectly holy, then we can be... I'm Sorry, if God is perfectly holy, then we can be confident that his actions towards us are always perfect and just. We are often tempted to question God's actions and complain that he is unfair in his treatment of us. 
This is the devil's lie and the same thing he did to Eve. He essentially told her, God is being unfair to you. But it is impossible in the very nature of God that he should ever be unfair. Because he is holy, all his actions are holy. We must accept by faith the fact that God is holy even when trying circumstances make it appear otherwise. Have any of us been in trying circumstances that make it appear otherwise? I'm looking at a lot of you and I know the stories, right? Very true, right? I think it's a profound point. We must accept by faith the fact that God is holy even when trying circumstances make it appear otherwise. Now Israel found itself in some trying circumstances and so God is a very good teacher. I'm looking out here and a number of you are teachers. He's a very good teacher so he used object lessons. And we're going to look at three object lessons that he used with Israel in the desert where he was trying to teach them a lesson. Uh, These object lessons were object lessons in holiness. Object lesson number one is Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. Object lesson number two is the establishment of the Aaronic and Levitical priesthoods. And then object lesson number three is the tabernacle. Right, so let's start with this. First one is Mount Sinai. Here's a rendition of Mount Sinai, the smoking mountain on fire. Uh, sorry, we don't have the real live footage of that. That would have been more awesome. But if you remember the story, God said, set up a perimeter on the mountain. Nobody is to come up on the mountain. And if anybody is to cross those perimeters, they are to not be touched. They are to be shot or stoned to death, whether it be animal or person. And so they set up markers around the mountain and people could not go past those. And you can understand why, because as humans, we're very curious, right? And so if a marker or a line's put up, what's our first natural inclination? Gee, I wonder what's on the other side, right? And so they were thinking that way. And so um, that's what happened. So they set this all up. But when God appeared on the mountain, you don't find them rushing those barriers to get closer, Matter of fact, you find them running the other way. God was trying to demonstrate in an object lesson way who he really was and what he was like. And so when he came on that mountain, that mountain began to smoke and tremble. We would call that a volcano and an earthquake, right? And they started to get rattled. And out of that furnace came trumpet blasts, right? Now imagine, we, you know, we're used to like music festivals and We're used to 100,000 people and speakers blurring and all 100,000 can hear that. They had nothing like that in that day. Can you imagine what that sounded like to them? The trumpets blaring and then they heard the voice of God speak. It was so awesome. They begged that they would not hear another word. Absolutely terrified them. Because they were up against someone so holy, so other, so they had no idea what to do with the experience. They begged Moses. They said, look, we'll pull away. We'll sit over here. You go up on the mountain and go talk to God. He's your buddy. Uh, you seem to get along fine with him. You go cover the ground for us. We'll sit back here. Right? And often that is our first inclination when we run into the holiness of God is, hey, we're dirty. We can't get close to that. And so what was God interested in doing? He's interested in giving them new laws. Why new laws? Because they've been operating under the laws of Egypt for 400 years. And the laws of Egypt were corrupt. The laws of Egypt were polluted. And so God wanted to give them a different set of laws. 
a laws that would guide them as a nation, uh, highlighted by the Ten Commandments. But if you read in Leviticus and Numbers, it's not just the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy. There were other instructions attached to that for how they were supposed to operate as a nation, holy un, as unto the Lord. And so Mount Sinai. Then we have the priesthood was established. Aaron was chosen and his sons. And they were, uh, if you go in Leviticus, it outlines in great detail the exact nature, color, and fabric of this costume. Where everything is supposed to go, where the engraved stones are supposed to be, uh, to the minute detail. Because God was saying, There's, I'm doing an object lesson, you need a priest. We, we've understood this all through history. There has to be an intermediary between you and me. There has to be somebody who can cover that gap for you. And we're going to make this person the priest and the priest will be able to approach me with your concerns and with your prayer list. But you yourselves cannot. And so God established the priesthood, not just the Aaronic priesthood, but the whole Levitical priesthood. The Levites were in charge of, and we'll look at the next object lesson, taking care of the tabernacle. And so they had uh, specific instructions as to who was supposed to take care of the tabernacle, which part of the tabernacle they took care of. But when it came to the Holy of Holies, where the ark was, and by the way, with the ark, what God said is, uh, and Hebrews tells us that God said to Moses, make sure you make an exact copy of the things you've seen, because there are copies of things in heaven. So we're going to see that thing again, only I don't think it's going to look like we think it's going to look. All right, And uh, God was saying, only one person can approach me in the Holy of Holies. That's the high priest. And only once a year and only carrying blood. What was God making a picture of here? He was making a picture of the, the need for a sacrificial offering to be made so that God could be approached. Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And so God instituted this whole thing as an object lesson so they could watch that. Um, and, and the priests served in that capacity. And where did they serve? Object lesson number three, the tabernacle. Later to become the temple, but the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a picture of the kingdom of God, a picture of God himself. And you had the outer court, you had the holy court, and then you had the holies of holies. And God was giving them an object lesson on holiness is that you don't just waltz in here. Nobody, not just everybody could take care of this. It had to be the Levites. And they had specific instructions of what they were supposed to do. And so as they watched this and as they looked at the tabernacle, they realized they had to be very careful how they operate. You just didn't walk in and um, just say, hey, I think I'll go hang out with God. I'm going to go into the holies of holies. Uh, you'd have been dead. They had a reverence for God because of his holiness. And God was building that reverence into them as a nation. Now, um, this brings us to the book of Leviticus. Because where all this stuff is described, the priesthood and the tabernacle, is in the book of Leviticus. Uh, I know that's your favorite book to have a quiet time. Leviticus is probably the least liked the least read book in the entire Bible. If you have a read through the Bible, by the way, many of you are doing well on reading through the Bible this year. I want to encourage you. I've been greatly encouraged by how well you're doing. And a lot of you said, yeah, I hit Leviticus and I just hoped I could get through it. You know, 
and you kind of go on full speed and through the visiting, pop out the other end of numbers, and I can I can go again. So it's it's that kind of book. But one of the reasons it's that way is we don't understand why the book was written. Leviticus is a book literally you could translate it as holiness unto the Lord is the title of Leviticus, all right? The Levitical law. And if you understand this theme of holiness, you can see God was separating Israel as a people. He was separating their practices as well as their offerings unto holiness. The word we would be use in our language would be sanctified or set apart. He wanted to take the nation into the desert and set them apart and rewire it. We would say today, reprogram it, right? He's going to redo the software. He wants to take them out and put them in the desert. He wants to give them new laws to operate by. He wants to give them new practices. He wants to give them new ways that they can um, be set apart. And the question is, why did he do that? That was pretty extreme. And the reason that he had to do that is because part of what you might not pick up sometimes reading is that Israel was pretty polluted. They had lived in Egypt for 400 years. They picked up a lot of their practices, a lot of their ideas about gods. They had picked up a lot of their sexual practices. They had picked up a lot of their dietary practices and things that the Egyptians did and that God said, a lot of these things are an abomination to me. They're that bad. And so God wanted to purify them. God wanted to give them a different way that they could come at this. They had gotten pretty muddied, pretty polluted in their thoughts and actions over 400 years. So let's take a look at the book of Leviticus. As I said, it's holiness unto the Lord. You can break it down. If you just take it in chunks, it's pretty easy to understand. The sacrifices and offerings, chapter 1 to 7. People don't like those chapters. They go, oh, they're gross, they're gory. And I go, yeah, they are. Because we don't understand sacrifice. We've never done it. That's a Jewish thing. And most of us have not grown up on a farm. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, I always told parents, the two places you, take your, you should take your children to, one is, a, one is a morgue and the other one's a slaughterhouse. They go, that's gross. What kind of demented youth pastor were you? And I said, well, a morgue teaches you about the end of things. There's something profound to being in a hospital room and the person has died and there's just the body there. You learn something about life you otherwise wouldn't know. Trust me, I've been there to a lot of them. The other thing is the slaughterhouse is the smell of blood. Blood has a very visceral smell to it. Okay? Uh, it's very tangible. If you've been around it at all, if you've been in hospitals or surgery, uh, it is an incredibly distinct uh, aroma, flavor, smell, okay? And it, it's just um, uh, really revolting to a lot of people. But what that tells you is how costly the sacrifice to cover our sin was. That was God was trying to show in graphic detail. This is what your sin does. This is what your sin looks like against my holiness. And so chapters 1 to 7 are all about the sacrifices and offerings. Chapter 8 to 10 is about being set apart. You are not to be like the Egyptians. You are to be like this. And he gives them a template for what they're supposed to be like. In chapters 11 through 15, clean versus unclean. Here's what you do if you're clean. Here's what you do if you're unclean. If you're, you are clean and become unclean, you go outside the camp. 
You spend this much time, once you're clean, then you can come back in the tent. But when you come back, you offer an offering or a sacrifice for being clean again. Uh, the idea there is to understand that God cleans, cleans them, not themselves. And then uh, chapter 16 and 17, the atonement. Once a year in Israel, the uh, most important holiday in the Jewish calendar is the Day of Atonement. And so God was talking about how I am going to atone for you as a nation. And when you read that, it makes a lot of sense. And then chapters 18 to 28 is all about holy sexual relations. All right? Sex is great. God made it. It's awesome. The plumbing almost always works. All right? But we as humans have an incredible way of twisting it. We have an incredible way of messing the thing up. And I've got news for you. you know, we're, if you just look at our culture, how many ways has it twisted it? Well, I got news that none of that's new. It was happening four to 6,000 years ago. All those twists that we see today, it just goes in certain areas and then it just gets worse. Till the judgment of God comes, it calls the cup of iniquity or wrath is full. Right? Nothing new under the sun. And God was saying, here, here's a way to have holy relations. Why? Because God valued marriage and God valued families. And he knew if they operated the way the Egyptians did, families didn't stick together. Okay? Translate that, there's some great implications for that for our culture. And then the holiness of the priests. The idea there that not just anybody could be a priest. They had to be the person God selected and they had to, even though they were selected, they had to do it right. And then if you get a little farther in Leviticus, Leviticus 23 is the feast unto the Lord. So if you just click through it, verse 3 is the Sabbath. Take the Lord's day, make it holy, pay attention to me, give me your attention. Passover, remember what I did to bring you out. I, I had a great experience of this this week. Um, uh, I, I met with uh, Scott Ritter. He's a, a pastor in the area, but he's retired. And they've, he and his family started attending Northview. I've known him for 20-some years. We went out and had lunch. And we swapped our stories. Two days later, and I was at Boston's restaurant, in the town center. Two days later, met in the exact same restaurant, just two booths over, and I met with a guy named Daniel Markham. Daniel Markham is one of the heads now of Union Gospel in Everett, and he wanted to meet. And in both those circumstances, we started, uh, the question was asked, how did you find Jesus? And the stories came out. Well, here's what's fabulous about that. We were all Jesus, uh, Jesus Revolution people, Okay. We all came to the Lord in the Jesus Revolution. So all those stories, as we started talking, we started laughing, we started nodding, because we knew what was going to happen. And it was an absolutely delightful time. I mean, so blessed this week to share my story twice of how Jesus found me and rescued me. And they sharing theirs with me. That's what Passover is. How did God find you? How did God bring you over this and get you to here? That's what Passover was supposed to be. First fruits. Um, we don't get this one very much because we're not farmers, right? But if you're in a farming agricultural uh, context, you raise crops and you give the first fruits to the Lord as a thank you for the bounty of the crop. And the idea there is we recognize we didn't make this, you made this, you make us prosper, not us. But the principle takes the same principle for us today at we work jobs. And there's a first fruit to working those jobs. And God says, give the first fruits. Okay? Not the last fruits, not a quarter fruits, not three crops later. Give the first fruits. And to the degree that we obey that is to the degree that we get blessed. Feast of Weeks. Uh, this was uh, uh, 
part of the Jewish calendar where they marked by certain observations as they were moving towards the Day of Atonement to prepare the nation and get the nation ready uh, for that. Then you had the Feast of Trumpets, which was a, uh, a musical. We would call it um, uh, a concert, right? But it was trumpets and musical instruments uh, uh, that was to celebrate the Lord. And all of that led to the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was, the, again, the, the holy day in Israel, and it was symbol, uh, symbolizing God's atonement of them as a nation. Then they had the Feast of the Booths. God's like, God likes camping. Okay? This is church camp out. That's what it is. Basically, what they're supposed to do is, from all their towns, go out into the wilderness, grab a bunch of trees and brush, and, and make booths and live in the booths for a week. That was basically church camp. Okay, long before we ever called it that title, they were out in the wilderness and they were to remember that they once lived in booths. They didn't have all these big fancy houses and all this nice stuff. They once were wanderers in the desert and it was designed to remind them uh, of how God had rescued them. And then the last one was Jubilee. Jubilee, after every 50 years, everything reverted back. So And, and Jubilee, all debts were canceled. If you, for example... Uh, had a home and you became poor and you had to sell the home so you, you could live and you lost your land and that kind of stuff. At Jubilee, everything comes back. God is the original God of the do-over. Okay, If you made it a bad run at the first time, here's a do-over. Every 50 years, it's a do-over. All the land goes back to the families it belongs to. All the houses go back to the... All the debts are canceled. And so literally in Israel, you would make contracts based on how many years were left till Jubilee. If there was a short amount of time, you'd make it a short. If it was longer, you could make a longer contract because you knew Jubilee was coming and everything would go back to zero. It's how God would keep the nation out of poverty. Now these, these here are called holy convocations. Notice the title. Why are they called holy? Because they, are, they were celebrations and reminders of how good God was, but also of how holy he was and how holy he is. Diana gave me a great article uh, written by James McDonald this week where uh, he's talking about the laws in Deuteronomy and he quotes uh, Deuteronomy 10. And then, then he says this, he says, Rules, some say, are made to be broken. And while you might not be the kind of person who'd say that, or mean it at least, we all tend to question whether some of the rules we're forced to follow are simply capricious or arbitrary and generally not founded on reason. Right? You ever, who made that rule? Right? That's what he's saying. In some cases, of course, this is probably true. Cars traveling at 40 miles per hour, uh, for example, might just be as safe and sensibly driven as ones following the posted 30 mile per hour speed limit on any given stretch of road. But some in authority made a decision, so hey, that's the way it is. And so since that's the way it is, we drive 50. Okay. (laughs) Please, though, do not, he says, extend the same line of thinking to God's holy decrees in Scripture. Everything he said to us has its basis in his unique, all-knowing wisdom. The Bible is not a bunch of made-up opinions which, if God had been in a different mood one day, he might have configured in some other fashion. Life on earth is not a sociological experiment. It is governed by its creator who perfectly understands everything about it, everything about us and who in his mercy has given us his word as the manufacturer's specifications for human happiness. So when you hear the word sin, 
When you're contemplating caving into a familiar temptation, when you're building your case for why one little indulgence couldn't possibly hurt, he says, I hope you'll hear something else instead. I hope you'll hear sin to mean any action or any failure to take action that goes against God's loving plan for human flourishing. Sin is not another pointless regulation that if it wasn't there would make your life a whole lot easier and less stressful. The reason God doesn't want you and sin to ever occupy the same living space is for your good, not a random restriction to your freedom. He says, when our church was designing a new worship center for one of the first campuses, my idea all along had been that we should remove the columns obstructing the people's views. I didn't want all those posts interfering with the open floor plan we were hoping to create. One problem, he says. Those columns weren't there for decoration. They each served an important stabilizing purpose. We couldn't just cut them out, or at least not if we wanted the building to stand. If we ignored the laws of physics and the rules of reliable architecture, people would eventually be hurt by the fallout. God is the structural engineer of the universe. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. We will not always understand his ways. But he says, hear this. Sin is sin for a reason. Disobedience is painful for a reason. The problems that come about from the failure to be a person who, as in Isaiah 66, 2 says, is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word aren't the random backhanded slap of mere coincidence. We either follow the manufacturer's specs or we suffer consequences, guaranteed. So the question would be, well, how serious was holiness? Let's take a look just uh, through, again, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, We talked about Rephidim, water from the rock. We know this is the second time around. The people were really upset with Moses to the point they were going to stone him. Moses is caught between a rock and a hard place, literally God, the saving rock, and the hard place being Israel. He gets upset. He loses it. He strikes the right twice. What came about? The whole nation almost got wiped out and Moses never got to go into the promised land as a result of treating God unholy. It says, because you have not treated me as holy, you will not enter the promised land. Then we have the golden calf. Moses is up on the mountain too long. He's taking too much time. Yeah, that's scary and that's awesome, but nothing's happening. We expected something to happen. So let's make some gods and let's go back to Egypt. Aaron creates the lie. Well, I, they just brought me this gold jewelry. I threw it in the fire and the calf jumped out. Okay? Which tells you even holy people can lie. But what we don't read in that story, which, what most of us miss, is as a result of that whole incident, 3,000 people died that day. 3,000 people died that day. If we go to um, the priest even in holiness, because God gave specific instructions, and one of the instructions was for the incense that they were to burn. Right? This is my old Catholic habit here of the incense censor, right? You did it as an altar boy. And um, there was a certain incense, only that incense could be burned. And Aaron's son, who were also high priests in and of their own right, went to the tabernacle and they went to offer incense but it wasn't the one that was recommended by God and so the Bible says they offered strange fire to God and fire came out of the tabernacle and killed uh, Nadab and Abihu or Aaron's two sons struck him dead there was a Sabbath breaker who didn't take the Sabbath very seriously was out collecting wood they found him 
They brought him what was supposed to happen to him and they stoned him. It cost him his life because the Sabbath was to be kept holy. And then lastly, you have the incident of Baal of Peor. Now this one uh, is in the book of Numbers and this is when Israel's coming through and about to enter uh, east of the promised land in the land we call Moab and Edom. And they, uh, Balak, the, the king, wants to curse Israel. So he brings Balaam, the prophet. Remember Balaam and his donkey? That's that Balaam. And so he brings Balaam and his donkey and he brings them out and sets them up and he wants Balaam to curse. And Balaam blesses. So he brings them to second place, more sacrifices. He blesses Israel again. Brings them to a third place. He blesses them again. He says, look, didn't I tell you I can only do what God told me to do? I can't curse them. I can only bless them. And when you read that story, you think, gee, Balaam's a really cool guy, right? He did, only, he did exactly what God wanted him to do. Well, later you find out that isn't exactly true. And why, you find out, is when they came in and started a war on that side, they ended up killing Balak and Balaam. You go, why did they kill Balaam? He, he prophesied good to them. Well, he couldn't curse them. But what the, the record lets you know later on is that what he did do is he told them how to trip them up. He said, look, you're never going to get them that way, but one way you could get them is take your women, send your women among the tribes and get your women to seduce them. Get them drinking, get them partying, seduce them, and they will fall into air worshiping Baal. And that's what happens. This big Mardi Gras party breaks out. They're in the desert. They're sick of the sand. They're sick of the dust. They want to celebrate a little bit. And so this big uh, fat Tuesday party breaks out. They're all drinking, reveling. Uh, It's out of control. And to the point where one guy, while the elders of Moses are praying at the tabernacle, one guy takes a lady, brings her through camp, and brings her into his tent making love to her. Phineas takes a spear, runs into the tent, and runs the spear through the guy and the gal. Stops the plague. And Phineas was highly exalted by the Lord for doing that. What plague happened? 23,000 died that day for violating God's holiness. 23,000. That's the exact story in Scripture in 1 Corinthians where Paul says and we should not do like they did in the desert. And that day, 23,000 of them died. It was a big issue for them. In each of these instances, when their actions and attempts were exposed, i.e. that they realized they were sinners and facing terrible judgment, what does Israel always do? Cries out to the Lord. Right? Cries out to the Lord. And in the process of crying out to the Lord, they are saved. In the book of Galatians, uh, Paul writes that uh, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. Talking about the Mosaic law here being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So what does the law tutor us in or teach us in? Here's what the law teaches us. It starts way out here, a big funnel. Think of a big funnel that comes down to a point. And out here, you violate or break some of the laws and it it flashes and it lets you know you're failing. And if you don't... uh, it starts to exert pressure on you. Have you ever been under pressure for something wrong you've done? Right? And the funnel's narrowing and God continues to narrow that funnel and eventually you get to the place where you, you cry, uncle, the pressure's too great and you scream out for help 
And when we scream out and cry out for help, we ask God to help us. And that's what the law is designed to do, is to lead us to Christ. It's to lead us to the need that we have as a Savior. Why aren't people flocking to Jesus in our culture? There's not a lot of felt needs. And there's no definition of sin in our culture anymore. So they are blindly going along thinking that that holiness isn't an issue anymore and they're getting away with it and it's not affecting anything. But God has a way of bringing pressure and that pressure is brought so that people realize they need to cry out because they need a Savior. Usually you have to come to the end of yourself. Uh, The stories of conversions in prison are uh, very common. Why? Because usually if you're flat on the back, the only place to look is up. And you tend to run into God. That's what Israel learned in these, is that God had used the law to teach them their need for Him. What it tutored them in is something really specific. They weren't holy. Okay, They weren't holy. That they desperately needed a Savior. We will not, cannot get into heaven by our own holiness, our, our good works. I'm good enough to get in. Uh, We look pretty good to each other. If we measure ourselves against each other, we come up pretty good. If we measure ourselves against the holiness of God, it falls apart instantly. There's nothing to stand. There's nowhere to go with it. The law shows us and convinces us of our need for a Savior. And when we see that gap, we realize that if we don't do something about it, that I'm on my way to hell, then if we cry out to God just like they did, He will save us. You may be feeling that pressure this morning and you could cry out to him in your heart. It would be something as simple as this, Lord Jesus, I am an unholy person and my sins are testifying against me. I can no longer duck duck the issue. I need a Savior and I'm asking you to come in, forgive me of my sins. Wash me, cleanse me, make me holy by your shed blood on the cross. Remember, Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Somebody's covered that for us. Save me from my sins, Lord Jesus. It is in your name that I pray. Amen. Now the question would come, if I'm praying like that and I want God to rescue me, why would I pray in Jesus' name? What's, what's the hitch on that point? Because with Jesus, we run into the same holiness factor that Israel did. Remember earlier when we went through the names of God, God saves his people from their sins was Jesus. Hey, I want to tie a ribbon on this for you that maybe you've never seen before. Uh, in John chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Starting with verse 52, the Jews are in an argument with Jesus over who's legitimate. The Jews are saying we're legitimate because Abraham is our father. Jesus is saying I'm legitimate because Father and I are one. And the Jews come back with, no, you're not, because we know who your mother was. And we know you're an illegitimate child, so don't be talking to us about holiness, Mr. Bastard child. We know. That's what they were calling him. We tamed that down really bad. All right? They were saying, you don't have any right to talk to us because you were born out of wedlock. How dare you? They were furious with him. And then this, then Jesus says this, if anyone, um, the Jews say to him, we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Or the prophets who died? When they're talking about the prophets, they're talking about the Old Testament prophets, but specifically who? Moses. Are you you saying you're greater than Moses? Are you kidding? Who do you make yourself out to be? 
And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews looked at him in utter astonishment and said, You aren't even 50 years old yet. And you've seen Abraham? Obviously you're off your rocker. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... And he uses the title what? I am. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I am the God you are seeking to worship. Why call out in his name? He's the same God. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us the rock that gave water out in the desert, the rock they followed was Christ. Jesus was in the desert. And Jesus is with us in our deserts. Jesus said, I am, I am. And their response was they picked up stones to throw at him so they could kill him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I'm going to ask the, uh, the uh, guys to come forward to service communion this morning. We're having communion. I'm also going to ask the worship team to come up and get ready to lead us in worship. The worship ties in with the message in communion this morning. So just ignore them. They're just coming up doing their job. All right. As they come forward and as they serve as communion, the question is, all right, Steve, obviously you know how to walk through Scripture, but is holiness important today? Does it, does it matter? I'll go down here, John, give you some room. Let me give you some, what the New Testament says about this holiness we've been talking about in the Old Testament. In Hebrews 12, oops, I'm froze up there, Cam. Can you move me forward? There we go. Thank you. In Hebrews 12, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. In other words, we are to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So unless Jesus' holiness is imputed to us, unless we are given uh, His holiness, uh, none of us will see the Lord. That's why we cry out to Him, thank you, Steve, for Him to be able to save us. In 1 Peter, if we're saved, we are to strive after holiness. He says, as obedient children, don't be conformed. If you know Romans 12, 1 and 2, you'd know this follows that as well. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance when you didn't know God, but as he who has called you is, what's the word there? Holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In other words, this is not a sidetrack in the Christian life. This is the main course of the Christian life, is that we become holy people. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? Why did God lead them out into the desert? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, when you read those stories, does that sound like a fun trip? Would you have stood in line and said, Hey, me, 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 pick me. I'd like to go. That sounds fun. No. Why did he do it? I want to suggest to you he did it because he loved them. Deuteronomy says, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. 
And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after him and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving you out before other nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other God. He wanted to make them a chosen nation But more than that, he wanted to make them a holy nation. He wanted to clean up their pollution. Well, then the question is asked, well, why does God bring us into the desert? Any of us in this room have some desert experiences? Right? Didn't go the way we were planning. Didn't go the way we thought. Might be in one right now. Why? Same reason. Because he loves us. Hebrews 12 says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are children, illegitimate children and not sons. What the Bible is saying is, hey, if you can sin like a banshee and nothing happens, go back and check if you're saved because the odds are good you're probably not. That's what Hebrews is saying right here. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But then this catchphrase in Hebrews, it ties the whole message together. But he disciplines for our good that we may share in his holiness. Why does God discipline us? So that we can be made holy and share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Amen? True. Rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And you know, when we come to communion, like we are this morning, communion is a picture of the ultimate act of holiness in the universe. The ultimate act of holiness in the universe is that a a great high priest would rise up. We're going to talk on Easter. One like Moses who would be greater than Moses, who would rise up and take our place, who would pay a debt that we could not pay. It was the ultimate act of holiness. And he would reconcile not just a nation, but the world to himself. That he would call people through their sin and out of their sin to a relationship with him where they could be holy with him. And Jesus gave an object lesson just like he did in the Old Testament. Only this time he took two elements we know, and one was bread. He said, I want you to remember how I brought you out. And remember, and the bringing out, my body was broken for you. To make you holy, I had to go through this. Eat this in memory of me. The other object lesson was wine. And Jesus said, this is my blood which was shed for you. Remember, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. He said, I'm going to be the ultimate sacrifice. I'm going to cover your sins once for all so that we can be in fellowship together. He says, drink this in memory of me. Consider the topic of holiness this week as you go through your life. Don't let the Satan beat you up and lie to you. Just ask God, how could you get closer to him? What's one step you could take to be more holy this week 
as you follow the lead of the Holy Spirit.